0: Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner.
1: And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Launched in 1998, the North Carolina Central University Julius L. Chambers Biomedical Biotechnology Research Institute is an innovative research and training institute dedicated to the advancement of fundamental knowledge of human diseases particularly those that disproportionately affect African-Americans and other underrepresented groups. The Institute is named after the legendary civil rights attorney and former chancellor of NCCU, Julius L. Chambers. Chambers graduated from NCCU in 1958 with a degree in history. He attended UNC Chapel Hill School of Law, where he was the first African-American editor-in-chief of the Law Review and he graduated number one in his class in 1962. After being one of the leading civil rights attorneys in the nation, Chambers assumed the role of chancellor at NCCU in 1993 and served until 2001. It is indeed fitting that an institute launched under his leadership, with the purpose of conducting research focused on health issues that disproportionately affect minority and underserved communities bear his name. Tonight, we're going to discuss the work of the Institute, including the research and community support the Institute is undertaking to help with the COVID-19 pandemic. We have joining us Dr. Deepak Kumar, Director of the JLC-BBRI, as the Institute is called, Dr. Nakia Lory, who is the recently named Associate Director of the Institute, and Dr. William Pilkington, Program Director of the Institute. Thank you all for taking time to talk with us this evening.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: Thank you for having us. So first, we'd like to ask each of you to share your background with us, how you came to be at the Institute, and the focus of your specific research. Dr. Kumar,
3: let's start with you. So uh, thank you, Dr. Dawson. So, uh, as you indicated, I am the director of GLCBBRI, And so I came um, to NCCU in 2016, uh, and my background is cancer research. I'm a cancer researcher. Um, I uh, came from the University of District of Columbia in Washington, D.C. Prior to that, I was in Georgetown University. And uh, so I brought in the experience of uh, working on uh, health disparities um, uh, in specifically speaking, prostate cancer health disparities. And prior to coming here, um, I did uh, research on molecular markers on why in certain individuals, prostate cancer is more more aggressive versus uh, other individuals. Uh, I also did uh, um, some work on um, breast uh, cancer disparities and, and again, uh, basic cell and molecular biology. Um, When I came, joined this institute in 2016, I noticed that this was an unprecedented opportunity for me, at least, um, to do something uh, meaningful um, uh, to carry out uh, the vision that Chancellor Chambers uh, had laid out for this institute. All right,
1: great, thank you. Dr. Lori. Yes, yeah, so I am
2: new. I just started at NCCU in uh, February 3rd of this year. And um, I actually started doing research very early in life. Um, I've enjoyed research uh, since I was 15 years old. That's when I started doing it on the college level. And um, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. And um, after I would finish classes at my high school, I would get the bus or get a ride over to Clark Atlanta or to Warhouse to do research. So that's how I got started in research. Uh, After that, I went to undergrad uh, at Xavier University of Louisiana. And after that, I went to Brown University and I received my PhD in medical science. Um, After Brown, I went on to do um, translational research in cancer. Uh, at St. Jude uh, Children's Research Institute. And that's how I got into pediatric cancer. And so now I'm here at NCCU, very excited to be here and to be uh, a part of all the great work that they're doing, especially in health health disparities.
1: And we are delighted to have you join us. And Dr. Pilkington, you're very welcome. And Dr. Pilkington.
4: Hello, I'm William Pilkington. And for 38 years, I was the public health director in Cabarrus County, North Carolina. Um, As the public health officer, my responsibilities ranged over a variety of things. But most importantly, we worked significantly on social determinants of health and trying to improve those. Uh, Did a very good job of it in Cabarrus County, but I was always aware of the um, disproportionate problems that exist in other counties around our area. So when Dr. Kumar approached me about working with North Carolina Central after I left the Health Alliance and retired, I said, yes, I would come and do that because it's a passion of mine to improve the healthcare of all of our citizens, most especially our minority populations who for the entire history of this country have suffered mightily under the um, the remnants of a, a racial society where opportunity is not equally distributed, and one of our goals and my research interest is how can we bring about different programs and services, and take the research that the um, the Chambers Institute and the BBRI are doing, and take that research into the communities and and concretely show changes and significantly turn this vicious cycle of um, poor health that's existed among the minority populations in our in our state and throughout our nation for so many years. So it's an, it's an awesome goal, uh, but we feel like we have the ability and the capabilities
1: to do that. Great, thank you all. So, Dr. Kumar, you mentioned that uh, you thought coming to NCCU would Provide a wonderful opportunity to address health disparities. Can you talk a little bit about how the institute came to be and um, how Chancellor Chambers' leadership led to the creation
3: of the of the institute? You know, it's and and thank you for asking that. Um, as as you indicated earlier um, when you were introducing the institute, that this institute was created uh, in the the institute was created in 1999 when it was dedicated. And that was the time when we did not have any minority health uh, dedicated institute in the country. That was the time during the time when National Institutes of Health decided at that time to have an office of minority health. It was not an institute at that time. And then a few years later, This institute was well-established. And a few years later, NIH established National Center for Minority Health and Health Disparities. It was not an institute. Much later, NIH developed an institute. The center developed an institute as National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities. So Julius Chambers had the vision at that time to establish an institute to focus on minority health and health disparities when nobody had that vision. And what better place to have an institute focusing on minority handle health disparities than having such an institute at an HBCU? Because, you know, it it, it hits home for HBCUs, the problems that we have. And I think that's the vision that he had. So when I noticed that, I mean, I was really impressed with what he had taught. I mean, he was a great civil rights leader. He has, I mean, he he, he did phenomenal work in his life. But he was so multifaceted that he felt that establish, establishing an institute like this at NC Central will make an impact not only in developing capabilities in biomedical and biotechnology at an HBCU, but also will provide good role models for students and that's why the vision is basically to conduct health disparities research but also to prepare minority researchers which is very very important because if you really want to address health disparities you have to prepare more minority researchers because unless we have minority and researchers of color health disparities is not going anywhere
0: well, let me let me just chime and just ask you, what accounted for this uh, deficit uh, that uh, existed in 1998, uh, and uh, the uh, failure to recognize that this particular need existed?
3: So, Professor Joyner, I I'm not so sure if I can if I can if I can really nail it down to what really accounted for. I think what 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 I'm what I'm what I can what I can say is that probably it was that that was the time when people were recognizing that health disparities are real and I think at that time then the leaders thought that no we have to have focused effort on addressing these issues and that happened because people of color were coming into leadership roles and also they were becoming decision makers. And I think, I, th- I think that is when these things happen. But again, as I said, I mean, I don't think I can really pinpoint uh, at what accounted for, but that's what my opinion is.
1: Um, Dr. Kumar, you mentioned the training of students. Um, Dr. Lori, can you talk a little bit about uh, the, why it's so important? And Dr. Kumar has already kind of touched upon this. But in your, and you actually, as you mentioned, you started in February, so you haven't had a lot of time to spend with the students. But um, can you just talk a little bit about, expand a little bit more on, on the importance of having students, students being able to see research, students uh, being interested in this research that oftentimes will focus on these health disparities?
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. So yeah, training students is near and dear to my heart, and it's one of the reasons why I chose to come to NCCU because it would give me an opportunity to continue to train students. Uh, One of the reasons why it's so near and dear to my heart is because I wouldn't be here without the training and the mentorship of a lot of people who helped me to get through what we call the pipeline um, from from training to the professoriate. Um, When I was, I I told you that when I was growing up in Atlanta, there were uh, lab heads who allowed a 15 year old 10th 10th grade girl to come into their lab and to do research. And of course, I also wash the dishes, so that I could be helpful, <laughs> but I got trained. And that allowed me when I um, went to Xavier and was training there to then become a part of a, a group called the Leadership Alliance that uh, brings uh, students of color from HBCUs to um, schools like Brown and Yale and Harvard and schools in the Northeast to do research. Um, And so that's how I eventually got to Brown because I did research at Brown one year while I was at at Xavier and actually published a paper um, by the time I was 19 and then was able to go to Yale the next year. And I could not have done that without a program called the Leadership Alliance and without the mentors who were pushing me through that pipeline. Uh, And that is so critical You know, and then once I finished Brown, then those same mentors were encouraging me to go to a good postdoc. And that's how I ended up at St. Jude. Those same mentors that were helping me when I was at uh, Xavier, I still keep in touch with them and they helped me to um, move, to transition to North Carolina Central. And so um, having been supported through the pipeline, I know how very important it is for students to have that type of support and that type of training. And if they don't have that support, they can fall out of the pipeline at various points. If people had not come to me and said, hey, what's going on with your postdoc? You need to go ahead and apply for postdoc. I may not have gone to a postdoc. And so um, I'm really excited for the opportunity to give back in that way because I have been Helped along and supported by so many different people all over the country in order to get where I am And so North Carolina Central gives me that opportunity to continue to do that
0: Well, let, let me just ask you because you, you, it's it's unusual That a 16 uh, year old Uh would uh get involved in in scientific uh, research Uh, which is uh,
2: yes, that's yes, something yes.
0: that was kind of innately a part of you that led you to that uh, particular interest. And when we talk about increasing the number of uh, researchers who are people of color, uh, that goes back to uh, the availability of a pool of people. And so my, my question is, why has there been over the years and you know, uh, uh, an absence of an interest in scientific research among people of color that would put them in positions uh, that they can be a part of the pipeline?
2: My honest opinion about that is I think that we, many of us did not know that that was an opportunity for us because we did not see people who looked like us in science. Um, I'll never forget when I was, At Xavier, I used to do scientific magic shows. I would go to elementary schools and and like teach them how to make um, slime and I would make things glow. And I will never forget, um, I went to my brother's class. I think it was a fifth grade class at the time. And I gave them little lab codes, and they were so excited. And his teacher said to him, said to the entire class, said, I want you to look at Nakia. She is a scientist. And that means that you could be a scientist too. And particularly in the kids of color in that class, I saw a light bulb go off. It's like, wait a minute, she's a scientist. She looks like me. And as I've trained students, I've trained students uh, my entire tenure, um, and I should have said earlier, but I also uh, spent 11 years at Northwestern as an assistant professor, Uh, but I've, I've trained students my entire tenure and we have so many students that are really great at science, uh, but they don't know that it's an opportunity for them. And and if we do even think about science, it's usually medical school, because that's what our families know, that's what our families encourage. And medical school is incredible too. We, we need uh, diversity within medical schools, but we need even more diversity within science. And so I think, it's just a matter of the information getting out there, that that is
1: an opportunity for us. All right. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking about the NCCU Julius L. Chambers Biomedical Biotechnology Research Institute. And we have as our guests, Dr. Deepak Kumar, who is the director of the Institute Dr. Nakia Laurie, who was recently named associate director, and Dr. William Pilkington, who is the program director. We're going to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with the director of the Julius L. Chambers Biomedical Biotechnology Research Institute, as well as Dr. Nakia Laurie, who is the associate director, and Dr. William Hilkington, uh, Dr. Kumar, so what was it about dr laurie that prompted the institute to want to bring her on board
3: so thank you professor dawson um and uh you know we 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 heard from dr laurie on um, how she got into um the uh, uh you know from xavier to brown and the phenomenal career the career that she had but she brought in she brings two aspects um, to uh, to to NCCU. One definitely, as Professor Joyner uh, was talking about that how uh, as a sixteen year old um, uh, you know African American, she got into um, you know the Xavier, she inspired several of them, um, several others, and she got into Brown and she has made a phenomenal career for herself. Uh, and as a role model, But if you look at her personally, what she has achieved is phenomenal. So she is somebody who graduated from Xavier, went to Brown and Ivy League to do a PhD. And then she goes to St. Jude's. I mean, these are places where everybody aspires to go to. These are not some, you know, any place. then she goes to saint jude's and she does phenomenal work in one of the very important cancers retinoblastoma which is a cancer of the eye and i'm sure she can elaborate a lot more on that but she not only does that she publishes in one of the best journals in science nature she has a nature paper nobody at nccu has it you can count on maybe very, very few people of color will have a first author nature paper that she has. So that's what she brings to the table. So she's not just an African-American scientist that we have recruited. We have recruited a world-class, highly capable scientist. And then she goes from there to Northwestern. And she establishes a center of excellence on Tinoblastoma research. She manages, she deals with people. I don't have to tell you how difficult it must be for her to navigate through all these things, but she does it very well. And then she comes here with ideas, vision, being a role model. So we are truly delighted to have her. I just wanted to point that out.
1: Well, well, thank you. And uh, yes, it sounds like... Um... We are incredibly lucky <laughs> to yeah. have to have her here, and uh, and I know uh, as she was talking about Dr. Lori, as you were talking about in terms of being a role model and for students to be able to see someone who looks like them, who comes from a similar background, that that does a lot in terms of uh, underscoring to them what is possible.
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, and I have to say, I. Thank you, Dr. Kumar, that was so kind. Um, I stand on the shoulders of a lot of people. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about mentoring and, and training. Um, because I, really when it comes to science, you know how that whole um, saying, it takes a village? It really takes a village to get a, a, a child of color to a PhD or to research there are so many pitfalls and there are so many places where the person can fall out if they don't have a bunch of people supporting them. And then I get here and Dr. Kumar is, is also extremely supportive. Um, so I've, I've really, really been, been blessed in that way. Uh, but it's, it's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate because I have had a lot of people uh, to encourage me, to push me to keep going um, and and, That type of support is is really, there's no price you can put on it. And I really want to see the students at North Carolina Central to continue to get that kind of support.
1: Excellent. Uh, Dr. Pilkington, so in your previous job, you were able to see firsthand the disparities in terms of the... Uh, health issues that were being suffered by African Americans, uh, underrepresented communities. Can you expand a little bit more on, on what you observed and how you take what you saw and how that informs what you do as program director at the Institute?
4: Certainly. Um, it's not only what I've observed. Interestingly enough, what can we see? The father of medicine, Hippocrates, wrote an essay entitled "Airs, Waters, and Places, in which he stated that the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the places we live determine how long we will live. Uh, not much has changed <laughs> since 55 BC. Uh, and interestingly for all of us, in North Carolina, we rank as one of the worst states in terms of health care indices. Um, because of that, the place we've chosen to live or born to live in in this state is one that is... Um, ranks in the low 40s for all the entire population but if you're african-american the numbers become even worse and uh, some of our counties throughout the eastern part of our state and the western part of our state have numbers that rank very closely to the kind of indicators you would see in bangladesh or some of those countries Um, those historic factors that created those kinds of numbers of what we're working on at the HOPE program, which I direct. Our goal is to take three counties and the three counties we've chosen are Anson, Cabarrus and Rowan and work with them to see if we can change these kinds of conditions and these kinds of health indices for African Americans. Um, reason we chose those three counties, Anson is a county that ranks between 90 and 100 in North Carolina. So since North Carolina ranks near the bottom, That tells you how bad things would be in Anson County. Uh, Cabarrus generally ranks between one and 10 in the state. Rowan, right in the middle in the 50s and 60s. So Rowan is what is called a tier two county. Anson is a tier one and Cabarrus is a tier three. Um, we, We thought it was important to pick three counties like that because there are minority populations in all three counties all having some of the same issues and same, same health conditions. And if we could make concentrated efforts and concentrated programming that would bring services, would bring changes in health behaviors to the people living in those three counties who are under these situations, then we could prove that this can be done anywhere. So we set about, first of all, the most important thing we want to do to begin with is something that's never been done in this state, and that was health equity mapping. Uh, interestingly enough uh, and I guess it's maybe a reflection of being North Carolina no one has ever done that in this state so it's being done widely in the Pacific Coast states it's being done widely in the Northeast but not here so we really wanted to get into what is what are the difference in underlying population groups throughout any of these counties where are they located what is what is in common is it diabetes that's rampant Is it hypertension that's rampant? Is it cardiovascular? What are the problems going on there? And can we pinpoint those problems by the geographic areas, getting back to the air, water, and place thing, the places they live? And in the places that people live, can we go in and make differences? So that's been our goal. We did the health equity mapping, and now we're doing the actual programming from that health equity mapping to direct our services and our strategic direction going forward.
0: Dr. Plinger, let me let me just raise with you. I mean, we're we're in the uh, the city of medicine. We're in the Triangle uh, Research Center, which is one of the top research areas in the country. Uh, we are surrounded by two of the leading uh, research hospitals, UNC and and Duke. We have uh, some of the top hospitals around in Wake County and Durham County and uh, Orange county uh, which are ranked at or near the the top. Why is it that North Carolina ranks near the bottom if we have all of these uh, sterling resources uh, that are available right here uh, under our uh, uh, our control? Is it not getting out uh, to the counties where the people uh, are able to benefit from the um, I guess the largest C's of uh, these uh, triangle area institutions. Well, I think Dr.
4: Laurie said it very well earlier when she pointed out that there are very few persons of color in the scientific fields and in the healthcare fields. When you start looking at physicians in the United States and in North Carolina, the numbers generally around 96% of the physicians are white. Uh, so think about that in terms of access to services. So immediately that creates a barrier of access. It creates there's also barriers of availability. Yes, indeed, you live in an area where there's a lot of great services, but not necessarily near the populations that need them. Uh, the, so the availability is not as 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 good as it could be. Uh, the acceptability is a key issue as well. Services have to be user-friendly. Uh, if I go into a hospital or to a doctor's office where I do not feel welcome. Then I'm going to be less willing to come back if I go into an ED emergency room and I'm not welcome. I'm going to be less willing to come back. So that whole idea of acceptability enters into. Then there's the continuity of care. We clearly have indicated and seen in the COVID 19 crisis that we have now that the continuity of care given to African American populations is to the white populations. Um, The recovery rates all the, all the numbers indicate that this is a disproportionate virus affecting minority populations. Um, there are lots of reasons for that, but I think one of them has to do with the continuity of care that is received there. Then finally, there's also the cost of care. Um, not being able to, I grew up in a very poor family and my mother would not take me to the doctor unless we had money. Um, I imagine there's a lot of people in that same boat that they don't seek care until they absolutely have the money in hand to pay for it, or a source of payment from another per source, of, like insurance. So when you start looking at all those those conditions surrounding uh, our a lot of our minority population, you begin to understand easily that with a historic pattern of racism already going on, add those factors in, and then the numbers become pretty clear. To have the indicators that we have.
1: Dr. Pilkington, you mentioned after doing the health equity mapping that led to the program direction that the um, institute would take. Can you first talk about when you say health equity mapping, what does that look like from a layperson's perspective?
4: That literally looks like a map. <laughs> <So> <laughs> what what you do is you go into a very down by the zip code or down by the census tract, and you begin to look at what is going on in a particular geographic area of a county or a city and try to isolate. What are the conditions that are different? For example, why can someone live six streets away from where I live currently and where I'm talking to you from and have very different health outcomes than I have. Um, and the reasons are enormous, but what we're trying to do is understand those reasons. So is it because of the income that's being earned there in that home? Is it because of the education that's been received? Is it because of poor health as a child for the the elderly folks in the home? Is it the lack of clinical care services and the availability of those in the community? Is there no free clinic? Is there no uh, community care? All those things is what we're looking at. So you pinpoint those things by geographic area, and then you're able to say that and, and demonstrate to policymakers in a community. That's what and that's just one of the things we want to be able to do is take to the, the county commissions and the city councils and say, these are the problems you have in your county, and these are why you have these problems. Uh, it's easy enough to not address them, but not, address them, not addressing them has a long-term implication for every community. So if it goes back to education, let's find out about education. One of the greatest things I've heard as a measure of education lately is what the New York City School Superintendent says over and over again, anytime you see him. And he says, I can tell you by the number of children in the third grade who can't read at third grade reading level, the exact number of prison cells we're gonna need 15 years later. So if it points back there in education, then let's do something about it. And that's what we're trying to say. If there's an educational problem, there's a socioeconomic problem with jobs. There's a food security problem, which is another issue that pops up in, in doing this kind of work. And people do not have food. We know already that about 20 million people are hungry in this country all the time. Um, and that num- those numbers are in the thousands in North Carolina. So how do we expect children to learn when they're hungry? How do we expect them to learn when the educational system is not meeting their needs? All these things come into that, and that's what we're trying to do with the health equity mapping: identify those areas, point them out to policymakers, then take that information. And whether the policymakers go with it or not, North Carolina Central is going to go with it, and we're going to make some differences in those communities.
0: Okay, All right. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and uh, we're having a I mean, a great conversation about the uh, Julius Chambers Biomedical Biotechnology Research Institute and the uh, many things that uh, undergird its uh, creation. We're going to take a break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us and we'll be right back.
5: Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self advocacy. Both the pre law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu.
1: And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host, Irving Joyner, and I have been talking about the Julius L. Chambers Biomedical Biotechnology Research Institute, housed at the North Carolina Central University. And we have as our guest the director of the institute, Dr. Deepak Kumar, the associate director, Dr. Nakia Laurie. And the program director for the institute's Hope Program, Dr. William Pilkington. Um, right before the break, Dr. Kumar, Dr. Pilkington was talking about the work of the Hope Program and the health equity mapping, and how based on that data, that will dictate the uh, discussions that are that are. Uh, that they have with the policymakers, it will dictate how the community is engaged. Can you talk a little bit about why it was important for the HOPE program to be created in the first place?
3: Um, Thank you, Professor Dawson. So Julius Chambers' uh, BBRI, uh, we have four different programs. Uh, One is uh, focused on cardiometabolic disorders, where researchers are working on various aspects of cardiometabolic diseases, Um, alcohol disorders and things like that. We have a cancer program where we have a partnership with UNC Chapel Hill and many of the partnerships we are working on cancer disparities. Um, We also have a neuroscience of drug abuse program where our researchers are working on alcohol, cannabinoid disorders and we have a nutrition program where we are working on various aspects of nutrition uh, nutritional approaches. Um, Two years ago, Uh, we were funded by an IMHD to establish an RCMI Center for Health Disparities. We are the first center in the state of North Carolina, which were funded by an IMHD in the amount of $16 million. And through that, and before that also, um, BBRI has a very robust community engagement program where we have work being performed by our researchers from uh, behavioral sciences, uh, and also we are doing work in Durham area, Halifax area, and different counties. There was a, there was a lack, or there was there was an opportunity for us to do more um, community-based participatory research, and doing some uh, doing some work in actually community health and community engagement. We also have a campus in canopolis and so we we saw this opportunity to create. Uh, a very innovative program uh, which we termed as HOPE for health uh, health equity, uh, environment, and population health. And the idea is to really understand the social determinants of health disparities at a deeper level. We have done some work, but can we connect uh, the behavioral piece, the social piece to the biology and also understand what goes on, what are the underlying factors um, um, behind health disparities. That's why we created this whole program, and we were looking for a leader to lead this uh, program. And when 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 we heard about Dr. Pilkington, um, who has done some phenomenal work uh, in Cabarrus County, he was the director of Cabarrus Health Alliance. He created that alliance um, as as a public health uh, entity in Cabarrus uh, County, and he took that entity and made it nationally recognized. And nationally accredited. I mean, that was the first entity um, to be nationally accredited uh, in um, in North Carolina. Um, so, and and he was he was he has done phenomenal work, and he was ready to retire. So, um, of course, I mean, I went and begged him that uh, if he would be willing to uh, you know help us out in uh, you know making this uh, happen. And and here we are. And as you heard from Dr. Pilkington, I mean, he has done some phenomenal work. I mean, he has this. He has this vision to really make a difference in the community. Something that uh, is very well aligned with the mission uh, of is Something that we uh, we want to do. So, there's uh, Dr. Pilkington.
1: Dr. Laurie, can you talk about why it's so important that the institute play a role? Uh, in engaging in the community, particularly now when we're dealing with COVID-19 and we see the health disparities that you all have been talking about play out uh, with this pandemic as well?
2: Yes, I I really think uh, when we're looking at this unprecedented time with COVID-19, we all know that it's affecting the Black community and communities of color in a disproportionate way as far as hospitalizations, as far as deaths, And I think really this is a prime opportunity for North Carolina Central to really be of service to the community at a time when they really need us. Uh, We already have a great infrastructure, as Dr. Kumar mentioned, uh, uh, where health disparities are already being uh, researched and there's research being done within the communities where we already have a footprint and a presence. And this is the opportunity for us to really be of service to the community in, in light of not only the biological factors, <clears throat> excuse me, of COVID-19 and having our researchers, our great biology faculty, uh, learn more about the biology of COVID-19, but also to learn more about the social factors, how it's affecting our community socially so that we could be of service to our community.
0: You know, one of my concerns is that uh, you, you talk about these disparities uh, within the uh, communities in which people of color reside, there is not a lot of discussions about those disparities. There's a lot of suffering from those uh, disparities, uh, and it is kind of like a, a little secret. But in the larger community, uh, there is that, uh, that knowledge. How important is uh, education of our communities about these disparities and ways to minimize uh, the uh, harmful effects of these various medical problems? Uh, how important is that in moving forward with your work?
4: I could take that uh, question because sure. that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We, we feel uh, that and very strongly feel that in most cases, what has been brought to communities of color have been programs that were not asked for that were not needed, that we're not meeting the demands of those communities. So we've kind of tried to turn this on its head, and we are doing focus groups with these communities, asking them to give us input as to what they feel they need, as opposed to us telling them what they need. Um, my whole life in public health, myself and all of my colleagues spent a great deal of time taking things to people that. Either national grant programs or someone else said was what they needed. Very little time is ever spent asking people what they do need. And in addition, as you just pointed out, that education aspect of it, we are very intent on going forward and helping people learn how to cook healthy foods, for example, using uh, a culinary chef to do that kind of work and do all the things that provide the teaching aspect of it uh, without it being a a blaming the victim kind of teaching but more a this is the way you can cook chicken and cook it healthy uh, it doesn't have to always be fried it has to be fried with this there's other ways to make it good How and how can you make chicken salad without mayonnaise easily with yogurt tastes just as good those kinds of things are what we're trying to do and and show and demonstrate and in addition help out with actual locating foods and finding foods because it's often with the, the, the problem of supply of food in our communities is, again, problematic in that grocery stores are in communities uh, where are not easily reached by uh, communities of color. And many in many cities, including New York City, there are grocery stores not even available. I can remember uh, just a few years ago, the biggest uh, crusade that was going on was Magic Johnson trying to get a grocery store in the Bronx that hadn't had one in 50 years. I mean, think about the Bronx. It's bigger than almost any city in the southeastern United States, and it had no grocery stores. So it does now have one, thanks to Magic Johnson, but that was his goal and his his motivation. And I think that's a lot of what we're about. Let's either um, direct services, help services, or shipping services, one of, the, one of the three or four. But that's what we're trying to do.
1: Dr. Kumar, did you have something you wanted to add as well?
3: Well, so I think, uh, as Professor Joyner was asking, and I was thinking that, you know, bi-directional exchange is very important for us. Uh, whatever community engagement we have done and what we are planning to do, uh, I think we are, uh, uh, we are always doing it in a bi-directional manner. We always uh, invite community leaders, and we have, um, uh, whenever we go in the community, the first thing we do is we identify a community advocate. Uh, Community advocate, community gatekeepers are very important to not only have the trust of the community, but also to provide the voice of the community uh, so we know what the community needs and what we need to act. That's one. The second is, I think, preparing community ambassadors is very important because we have to empower them so they can really ask the right question. And through the HOPE program, what we are also planning to do is we are planning to create these small mini courses where we can educate community leaders and community, um, um, uh, you know, and create NCCU health ambassadors, community ambassadors. Once we do that, then we can address the concern that Professor Joyner, you indicated that the communities don't know about it to the extent to which they should.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it sounds like so much of the a firm foundation has been made that has led us to, uh, or led the Institute to be prepared for this moment um, in terms of uh, understanding the health disparities. And we know that because of of these health disparities, uh, the African-American and other minority communities are disproportionately affected by COVID. Um, And you've already talked about building those relationships with the community members. Dr. Pilkington, can you talk about what the HOPE program has been able to do in terms of uh, helping the communities prepare for and respond to COVID-19?
4: Yes. um, One of the things we've been doing is trying to work within those communities. We have, within the HOPE program right now, there are two of us. And so we're spread pretty thin between three counties. But uh, we've also, the, the main campus in Durham has provided assistance to us. We've been trying to get out in the communities, into the health departments, into the community groups, find out what the needs are. Are there? Uh, one of the things we're looking at specifically right now is food security, uh, and we'll be conducting shortly a survey in the three counties to determine if the communities of color are experiencing what we're seeing in the media, or is it there, or is it worse, is it better? Is it, what are the situations in our three counties? And we would like to be able to. Take that information and develop it into again some programming that we do based on that. Because this is not going to be a short-term event; it's going to be a long-term event. How how much worse it's going to get, we don't know at this point. But we would sure like to, to help out in this current COVID nineteen crisis, but being also per, try to build some resilience into these communities in the future, so that if there are really severe hardships that are being incurred right now, what can we do to change those? in the event that there's another COVID event two years down the road. So we're, we're looking at that um, and getting getting our, our communities together to work on that. And as Dr. Kumar said, we have some excellent gatekeepers in each community who are very good at providing that kind of uh, contact and help within those communities and putting us in touch with the right people.
1: And what advice would you give uh, members of uh, the African-American and other minority communities. Um, what advice in terms of dealing with this crisis based on, based on what you're seeing on the ground, I guess, is what my question is getting to.
4: Uh, It's interesting you ask that question because I had an editorial published in our local newspaper today with my advice for that. (laughs) uh, The the important point I tried to make in that editorial was know your facts. Uh, we know certain things about COVID-19 now, one of them being it's disproportionately affecting the communities of color. As was already stated, that's not really talked about within the communities, it ought to be. People ought to know that the effect is there and the effect is greater on, on minority communities. Also learn as much as you can about COVID-19 itself. That you hear a lot of politicians um, purport to have that knowledge. Um, as i said in the editorial this morning listen to that with a critical ear uh, we have the centers for disease control you have your local health departments you have your state health department that are giving out accurate factual information look at that and make your judgment decisions and read as much as you can learn as much as you can about it i think with all those things in hand we will do all of us will do much better but the important thing i would say to all all persons is that the science is not keeping up at this point in time with the virus. And until the science up, we're going to be behind. And as long as we're behind, it's really important to be vigilant uh, for every person and for every family. So do the things that you're being asked to do. I know we'd all like to go out and eat. We'd all like to go out and do the things we used to do. But that's a ways off. And it's a way off because of the, the nature of this virus. We have a new strain of the virus that has been been, um, identified within the last couple of weeks that has a spike that is much more infectious and much more deadly. We know it has spread from Western Europe to the United States. It's probably the reason why New York City is having the problem it's having with fatalities as well as the, the illnesses themselves. So because we still don't know that much and it's still developing, just be vigilant. That's the thing I can say,
1: Dr. Kumar. You had mentioned that uh, one of the reasons why um, you decided to create the Hope Program, and if and if I remember correctly, the Hope Program is actually your brainchild uh, because you wanted to have more community engagement. What can the community do to reach out to the institute to continue to build that community
3: institute relationship? So I think. I think what we what we are trying to do is we are trying to create more awareness and empowering the community leaders and community through those community leaders so they can tell us what we don't know. Often it is unidirectional and we tell communities that this is the problem that you have and this is what we are going to address, not the other way around. So we are trying to really empower and create bi-directional exchange with the community. And what we have what we what what we are doing is we are doing in a couple of ways. One of the ways that we have done is as Dr. Pilkington said, that our strength in the whole program is limited. So what we are doing is we are leveraging the resources that we have. We are partnering with public health departments. We are partnering with community-based organizations. So when we do that, we are really creating a larger critical mass of individuals to really make a difference in doing what we are going to do, what we want to do. And so what 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 I want from the community is that trust and cooperation through the channels that we are using, the community-based organizations, the community leaders, the community advocates, who they trust, so they can tell us, they can convey to us what is needed. So it is a joint effort to address the problems that we are having in the communities. Okay,
1: excellent. Now, the Institute has been the recipient of some grants recently. Can you talk a little bit about those grants and how uh, those grant funds will be used?
3: So uh, we we, we have several grants uh, at the Institute. Um, uh, the The most significant grant that we received a couple of years ago was from National Institutes of Minority Health and Health Disparities. Uh, which is to establish the rcmis center for health disparities um, at nccu and the idea is to further uh, further strengthen the infrastructure to conduct health disparities research prepare more and more researchers to conduct uh, who who are involved in health disparities research and also to conduct three major projects uh, addressing health disparities and those three major projects Are to uh, do some uh, work on chronic kidney disease and how how African-American men, they respond to stress and their association with chronic kidney disease. That's one project. The second project is on alcohol, obesity, and high-fat diet, and the association with kidney disease sorry in liver disease sorry in liver disease uh, and how it is different between african americans uh, the third project is on triple negative breast cancer where one of the researchers have identified a specific protein which is more prominent in african american women versus the caucasian women and what role that protein is playing so these are three major projects then we have also funded Five different other projects, smaller projects, where individuals are conducting research on various aspects, such as how um, uh, how uh, air pollution, um, uh, the very small, um, um, uh, you know, the the uh, very small particles uh, in the air, which is like PM 2.5 and PM 10, how they affect um, uh, pulmonary diseases and what impact plays of living has on pulmonary diseases. That's what one of the investigators is trying to find out. We're also working on parent-child relationship, uh, how it is getting affected in minority communities. Uh, Another individual is working on uh, structural disparities issues. So multiple junior investigators are working on many, many issues on that. We're also trying to strengthen the infrastructure at NCCU uh, in terms of um, um, uh, providing better uh, equipment, infrastructure uh, for that. One of, the, one of the projects that Dr. Uh, Lori is going to be also involved in is the chronic kidney disease project that I mentioned, um, and we are very fortunate to have her. Uh, then we also have a very robust community engagement program where we are working in Durham community as well as Halifax community to, again, in a bi-directional exchange creating 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 a platform where our researchers can go and study various aspects uh, of health disparities uh, in in and in, 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 as part of community-based participatory research so we have that and we also have an investigative development core where we have a range of activities uh, which are designed to develop our investigators
1: all right well excellent thank you so much uh, each one of you for all the work that you are doing with the Institute. It is crucial uh, that we continue to have the Institute's support, and we commend you and just, you know, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Uh, We have been talking this hour with Dr. Deepak Kumar, who is the director of the Julius L. Chambers Biomedical Biotechnology Research Institute, which is housed at the North Carolina Central University, Dr. Nakia Laurie, who is the Associate Director of the Institute, and Dr. William Pilkington, who is the program director of the HOPE program. We'd like to thank you as well, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope that you've enjoyed the show and we are sure that you have learned a tremendous amount. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss a show, you can find us on iTunes in podcast form. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.